We're talking about Roman Catholicism today. Just by a show of hands, how many of you are former Roman Catholics? How many recovering Catholics do we have? All right. All right, good. How many of you know someone who's Catholic? Everybody. Okay. Well, I have four to five hours of teaching on Roman Catholicism. And like Mormonism, it's really complex and there's a lot to it. So I'd love to tell you today, we're going to talk about everything there is to know about the Roman Catholic Church. We're going to be here all year. So we're just going to cover their view of justification and what they call penance. And I think you'll see very quickly why we say this is bad theology and they are a Christian cult, because they do not believe in the gospel as it's defined in Scripture. So I have a ton of information, so let's just get started here. I'm going to start with justification. Justification is the heart of the gospel, and it was the primary issue of the Reformation. The Reformers went after the Catholic Church, one, on the issue of authority. They denied the authority of Scripture. They said the Church had authority over Scripture and was a sole interpreter of Scripture. The second issue was this issue of justification. Biblically, when we talk about justification, we are talking about God declaring the sinner to be righteous on the basis of the work of Christ. God is pictured as being a judge sitting in a courtroom, and the guilty sinner walks in, stands before the judge, and the judge says, I declare you to be righteous, not because you have actually done righteousness, but because Christ is righteous. And Christ took your guilt, your guilt was imputed to Christ, and Christ imputes his righteousness to you, and now you are righteous before God. This is what Paul said in Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified, declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Justified is the Greek word dikaiao. It means, bdag, the gold standard in Greek lexicon, says it means to be pronounced and treated as righteous and thereby become dikaios, become righteous. Receive the divine gift of dikaiosune, righteousness through faith in Christ Jesus and apart from nomos, nomos is the law, as a basis for evaluation. So justification is God pronouncing and treating you as righteous, and thereby you become righteous. And you receive righteousness from God, and you receive that apart from the law. Make sense? This same word is used in a few verses later, Romans 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God imputes, he credits your guilt to Jesus, and he treats Jesus as if Jesus was guilty when he's on the cross, and he pours out his wrath, satisfies his justice on Christ, and then Christ imputes or credits to you his perfect righteousness. And so when you stand before God, you are positionally righteous. You have been declared righteous, and God does not see your sin-stained life. He sees the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ. This is done when the sinner trusts in Christ. It's done through faith apart from works. Romans 3, 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Everyone who believes in Christ, who trusts in Christ in a saving way, will be counted as righteous. This is all through the New Testament. We're not going to go through all the verses. Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That is the biblical doctrine of justification. But that is not what the Catholic Church teaches or believes. In fact, they actually curse, they damn you if you say anything other than what they teach. And if you teach salvation by faith alone, in their mind you are cursed. You are on your way to hell. The Council of Trent, which was in the 1500s, it was in response to the Reformation. Council of Trent, in the sixth session, canon number nine. If anyone shall say that by faith alone the impious is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate 
in order unto the obtaining of the grace of justification, and, and that it is not in any respect necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. If you say salvation is a work of God from start to finish, you are cursed. And you say, well, Frank, this is from the 1500s. They don't believe this anymore. No, the Catholic Catechism still says this is authoritative. Canon number 11. If anyone shall say that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the righteousness of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. So if they reject the biblical gospel, if they reject the biblical account of what justification is, and they say that's not true, what is it that they teach about justification? Well, let's start with how they view the sinner. This begins with their doctrine of original sin. We understand original sin as the sin of Adam that is credited, imputed to everyone. So you are guilty on the basis of Adam, and you receive a sinful nature from Adam. And his guilt and the effects of his sin pass to all of his progeny. And as a result, everyone is born in this world a sinner, guilty before God and desiring sin. Original sin, biblically, is total. We would say total depravity. It affects every aspect of your nature. All of you is corrupted. But the Catholic Church would say, not all of you is corrupted. It's a view known as semi-Pelagianism. That you are mostly corrupt, but deep down inside there's some sweet, creamy goodness still there. And if you just work really hard, you can get that to come out. And God provides grace so that you can do this. The Catholic Catechism says that original sin takes us from being just and makes us unjust. Catholic Catechism, you'll see a number here, four or five, that's the paragraph number. So if you have a Catholic Catechism, you can find the paragraph. Original sin does not have the character of a personal fault in any of Adam's descendants. It is a deprivation of original holiness and justice. But human nature has not been totally corrupted. It is wounded in the natural powers proper to it, subject to ignorance, suffering, and the dominion of death and inclined to sin. You see how you're not a total sinner. You're just a partial one. According to Rome, the first step to fighting sin is getting baptized, preferably as an infant. Catholic Catechism again. By baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin, in those who have been reborn, nothing remains that would impede their entry into the kingdom of God, neither Adam's sin, nor personal sin, nor the consequences of sin, the gravest of which is separation from God. So you go through and you get baptized, and then once you're baptized, nothing can impede your entrance into heaven. I was baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church. They said that at the moment I was baptized, I was guaranteed entrance into heaven. Why? By grace alone? No. They would say that great God's grace, i.e. God's favor, allows the child to be baptized. But the saving work is done through the act of baptism. The Catholic Church has a phrase for ex opere operata. Literally, through the work worked. Forgiveness of sin, removal of original sin is accomplished through the work of baptism. And they say, well, faith is necessary, it's just not sufficient. And you say, well, how does a baby have faith? Their parents can believe for them. Catholic Catechism. Baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin and turns man back to God. It is in baptism that you are given the life of Christ's grace. The Catholic Church believes that grace is infused into the sacraments. And when you participate in the sacraments, sanctifying grace is now infused in some way into you. The Catholic Church says that this is where you are justified. You are justified through baptism. Uh, the Catholic Catechism. The Most Holy Trinity gives the baptized sanctifying grace, the grace of justification. You are justified in the Catholic Church's view when you are baptized. And according to the Catholic Church, there is no justification outside of the Roman Catholic baptism. The Council of Trent, 6th session, chapter 7. The instrumental cause, moreover, speaking of justification, 
is the sacrament of baptism, which is the sacrament of faith, without which justification never befell any man. If you, according to the Catholic Church, if you do not get baptized in the Catholic Church, you cannot be justified. Rome does not define justification as God declaring the sinner to be righteous on the basis of the life and the work of Christ. Because they say that God would never declare a sinner to be righteous unless that sinner actually was righteous. Think about that for a minute. Jesus won't save you until you're righteous. Which means I'm never going to get saved. Council of Trent says that justification is not merely the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and the renewal of the inward man through the voluntary reception of grace gifts, grace and gifts, whereby man from unjust becomes just, and from an enemy a friend, that so he may be an heir according to the hope of eternal life. Notice this first part here. It's not merely the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and the renewal of the inner man. They've taken justification and sanctification, and they've lumped them together. To be justified is to be sanctified, and to be sanctified is to be justified. Also notice, whereby man from unjust becomes just. You actually have to become righteous in order to experience salvation or justification in the Catholic Church. It starts with baptism. And when you are baptized, whether you're a baby or you're an adult, when you are baptized, you are said to be justified and in a state of grace. Now, for adults, if you want to get baptized in the Catholic Church, you go through something called RCIA. Anybody heard of that? It's the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. This is the process the adult goes through to become justified to enter into a state of grace. And once they're justified, now they need to grow in their justification and increase their justification. That is, increase their sanctification and thereby increase their standing before God. And at some point, if they sin, they may need to go back and get re-justified. Now, to understand that, we need to understand that there are two categories of sin in Roman Catholicism. The Bible only knows about one category of sin, the kind that leads to hell. The Catholic Church knows about two. The first is called venial sin, the Catholic Catechism. One commits venial sin when, in a less serious matter, he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or without complete consent. You might say this is a sin of ignorance. You didn't know you were sinning, and therefore God does not hold it to the same standard. The Catechism goes on. Venial sin merits temporal punishment. Remember that phrase, temporal punishment. It's going to come back. Deliberate and unrepentant venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. However, venial sin does not break the covenant with God. Really? There are some sins that don't violate God's covenant? With God's grace, it is humbly repairable. Venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace, friendship with God, charity, and consequently eternal happiness. And according to the Catholic Church, venial sins, these little tiny sins, you don't have to go through the sacraments for them. All you have to do is go back and confess them to God, and he'll forgive you. That's venial sin. Then they also have mortal sin. The Catholic Catechism, mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God. I want you to look at the language they use here. It destroys charity. It turns man away from God. That includes people who are supposedly justified. Catholic Catechism again. Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. It results in the loss of charity and the privation of sanctifying grace, that is, of the state of grace. Remember, the state of grace is where you enter once you are justified. If you commit a mortal sin, you get knocked out of the state of grace. You are no longer justified before God, and now you are on your way to hell. 
Catechism, if it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell, for our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. This is works righteousness at its finest. You can lose your justification. Once you commit a mortal sin, you are no longer righteous. You have fallen out of a state of grace, and if you die, you will be condemned for all eternity. Council of Trent, 6th session, chapter 14. But those who through sin have fallen away from the received grace of justification may again be justified. When God, exciting them through the sacrament of penance, they, by the merit of Christ, shall have obtained the recovery of the grace lost. The merit of Christ here is... I think they just put that in there to make it look like they're Christian. Because there's nothing here about Christ. This is all about you and what you're doing. Chapter 15 of the succession, speaking of justification. Justification, it is to be maintained that the received grace of justification is lost, not only by infidelity in which even faith itself is lost, but also by any other mortal sin soever, though faith be not lost. You can lose your justification for any mortal sin. Telling a lie is a mortal sin. And you lose your justification. Okay. If I'm a Roman Catholic and I have lost my justification because as surely as I'm standing here today, once justified in the Catholic Church, you will go commit a mortal sin sooner or later. And so you're going to need to get re-justified so you don't end up being condemned. How do I do that? How do I get re-justified? Answer, the sacraments. You need to be in the Catholic system to be justified. This is the supposed means by which you can be reconciled back to God and restored back into a state of grace. And so you go through the sacraments. First and foremost is the Eucharist, what they call the sacrifice of the Mass. I don't have time for that today. I have a whole, there's two hours of teaching on that online. It's a blasphemy. It's, it's really bad. But there is a single sacrament that is the means by which a Catholic can be re-justified and reconciled back to the Catholic Church and back to God. And the sacrament actually has five different names. And the reason it has five different names is because there's five different things that happen in the sacrament that supposedly you need. And I'm just going to give you the names. These are directly out of the Catholic Catechism. It's called the Sacrament of Conversion, the Sacrament of Penance, the Sacrament of Confession, the Sacrament of Forgiveness, and the Sacrament of Reconciliation. These all refer to the exact same sacrament. The Catholic Church only has seven sacraments. All of these refer to one. And I tell you that because you may hear it called different names. That's, they're all referring to the same thing. Let's talk about the first one. Conversion, I think we've already talked about in justification. Let's talk about penance. Penance parallels baptism here. In baptism, the sinner is justified. In penance, the sinner is re-justified. Baptism gives sanctifying grace to the descendants of Adam, people who are outside of grace. Penance restores sanctifying grace lost due to mortal sin. The Catholic Catechism. It is through the sacrament of penance that the baptized can be reconciled with God and with the church. This sacrament of penance is necessary for salvation for those who have fallen after baptism, just as baptism is necessary for salvation for those who have not yet been reborn. If you're a Catholic and you don't do this sacrament and you commit a mortal sin, you can't be saved. Catholic Catechism. Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of his church. Above all, for those who, since baptism, have fallen into a grave sin and have thus lost their baptismal grace and wounded ecclesial communion. Ecclesial communion just means when you commit a mortal sin, they say you have separated yourself from the church and now you need to be reconciled back to the church, which is why they say you need to go through a priest. Catholic Catechism, it is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of justification. What's the first step in the sacrament of penance? First step, confession. 
You need to go confess your sin to a priest. Now, I've heard Protestants talk to Catholics before, and this is their number one reason why they think Catholicism is wrong. I don't need to confess to a man. Not exactly true. We're called to confess our sins one to the other. It's not the fact that they're having someone having you confess to a person that's the issue. The issue is what they say is accomplished by confessing it to a person. Catholic Catechism. Confession to a priest is an essential part of the sacrament of penance. All mortal sins of which penitents, after a diligent self-examination, are conscious, must be recounted by them in confession, even if they are the most secret and have been committed against the last two precepts of the Decalogue. For these sins sometimes wound the soul more grievously and more dangerous than those which are committed openly. Every mortal sin must be confessed. And if you fail to confess all of them, or if you hold back and don't say all of them, you may not be forgiven. The Council of Trent. For it is certain that in the church nothing else is required of penitence but that after each has examined himself diligently and examined all the folds and recesses of his conscience, he confessed those sins by which he shall remember that he has, has in a deadly manner offended his Lord and God, whilst the other sins which do not occur to him after diligent considering are understood to be included as a whole in that same confession. You need to confess everything. And they have a lot of rules on priests, on what priests are allowed to share, so much so that you remember the big scandals that have occurred in the Catholic Church? Those scandals were all confessed in a confessional, but the priests weren't allowed to talk about it with anyone, or they would be defrocked. And they say the reason they covered it up is because in the confessional, this is the way people are forgiven of sin, and once God forgives it, why are we going to talk about it? At the end of all these sessions, they, they give decrees in what they call canons, and these just summarize their view. Canon number seven. If anyone shall say that in the sacrament of penance, it is not a di of divine right necessary unto the remission of sins to confess all and individually the deadly sins, or shall say that they who strive to confess all their sins wish to leave nothing to the divine mercy to pardon, or finally that it is not lawful to confess venial sins, let him be anathema. Notice there, or shall say that they who strive to confess all their sins wish to leave nothing to the divine mercy to pardon. Another way of saying, if you don't confess it, God may not pardon it. If you hold it back, don't expect to be forgiven. They recommend that you confess venial sins, but it's not required. You don't need to do it. You can confess that directly to God. Now, when you go into the confessional, this isn't like you can just spout off a whole bunch of sin and the priest's like, okay, you're good to go. The priest is actually supposed to evaluate the confession and determine whether or not the person is genuinely sorrow for the sin, and whether or not the person actually intends to turn from that sin. Because in the Catholic Church, it is by the pronouncement of the priest that a person is forgiven. God forgives, but he does so through the works of the church. And the priest is, to, is supposed to sit, not as a brother in Christ, but he is acting as a judge in the confessional. The code of canon law. And here in Confessions, the priest is to remember that he is equally a judge and a physician and has been established by God as a minister of divine justice and mercy so that he has regard for the divine honor and the salvation of souls. He is there as a judge to determine how well or how truthful you are in your penitence. And his job is to determine whether or not you are truly sorry and if you truly desire to stop the behavior. And once he reaches the conclusion that you are, Code of Canon Law, if the confessor has no doubt about the disposition of the penitent and the penitent seeks absolution, absolution is to be neither refused nor deferred. He is to absolve you of your sin immediately. To absolve someone of sin, this is directly out of the Catholic Catechism, is to set free to release from the consequences of guilt. Now, you're going to see in a minute that that is not actually true. Council of Trent. The Holy Synod furthermore teaches that the form of the sacrament of penance, in which its force chiefly consists, is placed in those words of the minister, I absolve thee. The priest acts in persona Christi, in the place of Christ, and absolves you of your sin. 
and it is by the priest's determination that you are forgiven. And if the priest does not say you're absolved, you are not forgiven. Now, these words, I absolve thee, are not empty words. They, they really do think that the priest has this power. This is where they, why they stand on Matthew, Matthew 16, where he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. This is how you exercise the keys of the kingdom. The Council of Trent. If anyone shall say that the sacramental absolution of the priest is not a judicial act, but a bare ministry of pronouncing and declaring sins to be remitted unto him who confesses, or say that the confession of the penitent is not required in order that the priest may be able to absolve him, let him be anathema. If you deny that this is a judicial act where the priest determines that you and determines and announces you to be forgiven, you're damned. If you say this is just the priest repeating what God has already said, you're damned. This is him working as a judge and declaring you on behalf of God to be forgiven. But the sacrament of penance is not over yet. I absolve thee is not the end of this discussion. You're not done yet. Catholic Catechism. If you want to be fully forgiven, you need to go further. Absolution takes away sin, but it does not remedy all the disorders sin has caused. Now, in some sense, we would agree with that. If you steal $100,000 from your employer, God will forgive you. You're still going to lose your job, and you're probably going to jail. Okay, so in some sense, we agree with this. But that's not all they mean here. Doing penance, is what, they, what they're talking about, is a way to make satisfaction to God for your sins. After you confess, you now need to do penance, and you need to make satisfaction and try to repair the damage between you and God that your sin has caused. The Catholic Catechism. Raised up from their sin, the sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for the sin. He must make satisfaction or expiate his sins. This satisfaction is also called penance. Now you have to go do some good works. You have to go do some good works to earn some of your justification back, what they call merit. And how do you know what you need to do? The priest will tell you. If you've ever been to a Catholic confession, I'm not recommending it, but if you ever do, you go in there, you, you kneel down or sit down, and the first thing you're supposed to say is, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. The time of my last confession was 30-some-odd years ago. And then he says, okay, what have you done? And you list off all your sins. And then once you're done with that, he'll say, I absolve thee. Now you need to go do, pray 50 Hail Marys, put some money in the box, go do this, go do that. And he lists off what you must do to expiate your sins. Expiate talks about removing your sin. Council of Trent, 14th session. The priests of the Lord ought, as far as the spirit and prudence shall suggest, enjoin salutary and fitting satisfactions according to the quality of the crimes and the ability of the penitents. The priest determines what your penance will be. Council of Trent. These satisfactory punishments greatly recall from sin and restrain, as it were, with a bridle and make penitents more cautious and watchful for the, purpose, for the future. They also furnish remedies for the remains of sin, and by opposite acts of the virtues, they remove the vicious habits required by evil living. Notice the opening there. Punishments. Where's Christ in this? Why did Jesus die on a cross if you have to be punished again? And in what sense are you justified in any respect? What sorts of things can be given as a form of penance, Catholic Catechism? The penance the confessor imposes must take into account the penitent's personal situation and must seek his spiritual good. It must correspond as far as possible with the gravity and nature of the sins committed. It can consist of prayer and offering, works of mercy, service of a neighbor, voluntary self-denial, sacrifices, and above all, the patient acceptance of the cross we must bear. You need to be punished just like Jesus. Bear your cross. 
Such penances help configure us to Christ who alone expiated our sins once and for all. They just said you have to expiate your sins, and now they're going to say Christ did it. They allow us to become co-heirs with the risen Christ, provided we suffer with him. You need to work and you need to suffer if you want to be restored. And even if you do all of that, even if you go through the rituals, the confession, the penance, even if the priest absolves you and he says, I absolve thee, you're still not done. It's still not over. There's still this wonderful little place called purgatory. Now, when I was a kid, my grandmother was a very devout Catholic. I remember as a kid praying the rosary with my grandmother. The rosary has five small beads and then a large bead, five small beads and then a large bead. And the large bead is you say an Our Father, and the small beads you say a Hail Mary. So you end up praying like 50 prayers to Mary and like five or ten prayers to the Father. Just so you know where the Father stands in this equation. Let's talk about purgatory. The Catholic Catechism. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. First time I read that, I had to read it again. I'm like, did it, did it really just say that? You can be in God's grace and friendship and yet still be imperfectly purified? Like Hebrews 10, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, not according to Rome. What happened? How is it that you can be in God's grace and friendship and still be imperfectly purified? Here's the answer. Your penance and your contrition and confession wasn't good enough. It's your fault that you're not purified. You didn't do enough to go to heaven. And now because you didn't work hard enough in this life, now you have to go through additional purification. Because God you know, doesn't want anything to do with filthy sinners. The Council of Florence in 1439. If those truly penitent have departed in the love of God before they have made satisfaction by worthy fruits of penance for sins of commission and omission, the souls of these are cleansed after death by purgatorial punishments and so that they may be released from punishments of this kind. The suffrages of the living faithful are of advantage to them, namely the sacrifices of masses, that would be the Eucharist, prayers and almsgiving, and other works of piety, which are customarily performed by the faithful for other faithful according to the institutions of the church. Yeah, well, that would be include indulgences. Well, I'll briefly mention indulgences at the end. Well, remember, notice, by almsgiving. Do anybody remember Johann Tetzel? From the Reformation, what was his little, his, little, his little ditty? A coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. If you just give us enough money, we can get your relatives out of purgatory. What is purgatory? Dr. Ludwig Ott, who was a 19th century theologian for the Roman Catholic Church, he wrote a book called Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. This is a great book because you can just find everything in it. By the way, when I cite sources here, the Catholic Catechism and the councils are considered absolutely authoritative. These other books that I use have what's called the imprimatur of the church. That means a bishop, according to Catholic theology, the bishop has teaching authority. He has reviewed the book, and he has put his stamp of approval on it. I do not use sources that don't have that stamp. Now, Catholics will still reject everything that's in the book and say, that's not what we believe, you don't understand. But that is what a bishop of their church said was correct. So, what is purgatory? Dr. Love, we got Purgatory. The cleansing fire, purgatorium, is a place in a state of temporal penal purification. See, when I was a kid, my grandma made it sound like, you know, purgatory was wonderful. Like, this is a second chance. And then I read this, and I'm like, ooh. is a place in state of temporal penal. We have a penal system of how we punish criminals. This is penal purification. The Manual for the Purgatorium Society. By the way, if you wanted to go Google this, you can Google this and find this on Google Books. The Manual of the Purgatorium Society. The Purgatorium Society, I don't know if they're still around, but they, their whole purpose in life was to encourage people to pray for and to do things for those in purgatory to try to get them out of purgatory. And they have a lot of teaching on what is purgatory. 
Here's what they said. Heaven is the happy destination of perfectly pure and holy souls only. Hell is the final doom of the reprobate. Purgatory, temporarily for the just, who are not as yet entirely purified. How are you considered just if you're not entirely purified? F.X. Shoup, who was a Catholic priest, he wrote probably the definitive work on purgatory because the Catholic Church says very little about it. He said, It is properly speaking the condition of souls which at the moment of death are in the state of grace, but which have not completely expiated their faults, nor attained the degree of purity necessary to enjoy the vision of God. Again, where is Jesus? What does Jesus do for you? If he doesn't purify you, you still have to expiate your own sins. Why do you need him? The Catholic Catechism. To understand this doctrine and the practice of the church, it is necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. Grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life, the privation of which is called eternal punishment of sin. On the other hand, every sin, even venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. That's just a really fancy, long-winded way of saying Jesus did not take all of your punishment. He did not actually save you from the wrath of God. These are sins and punishments that the Jesus of the Catholic Church cannot or will not remove. And I said the Jesus of the Catholic Church because you guys know this is not the Jesus we believe in. The Manual for the Purgatorian Society. There, speaking of purgatory, God completes the punishment due to their faults, which were not sufficiently atoned for on earth. There, he submits those holy souls to the last purgation to cleanse them from the least stain and by fire to bring them to that degree of perfected purity which is necessary for them before being admitted to eternal bliss. You just got to go through some more punishment before Jesus will take you to heaven. Purgatory has one purpose. Its purpose is to purify you of sin and to dish out punishment. F.X. Shoup. Purgatory is not trial by which merit may be gained or lost, but a state of atonement and expiation. It's a state of atonement. You atone for your sin. Yeah, that's a great question. Who actually decides when you've done enough? Um, the church would say they have the keys of the kingdom and they can dish out punishment, but they would turn that around and put it back on you and say you're at fault if you don't do enough. Um, so I think they would ultimately say it's God. But they'll tell you, you can't know if you're saved. You can't know if you're justified. You can't know if you're going to heaven. There's just no way for you to know. Only God knows that. And so I think they would ultimately say God would determine that. Yes, ma'am. Purgatory itself? Purgatory, they get out of 1 Corinthians 3 and a section out of 2 Maccabees. So I'm going to ignore 2 Maccabees because that's apocryphal. 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about the, the judgment seat of Christ where he judges your works, and he takes the works, specifically in 1 Corinthians 3, it's the work of people in ministry, and he burns them in fire, and some of them are burned up as wood, hay, and stubble, and they vanish because they were done for that person's glory, and then others are left as precious stones, gold, and silver. And those are the works that the person did for, for God. And they would say that that is the person, not the works. The person is being purified in the fire. And then there's a verse there where he says, you know, even if all their works burn up, they are still saved if by fire. So that's where they would point to, I think it's a complete misread of 1 Corinthians 3 and a twisting of it, but yes, ma'am. Yeah, they have some. Some of them you have to pay for. Some churches don't. My understanding of the, the candles there is you light the candle, and that's, a, that's indicating that you are praying for them. And as the heat of the candle rises, so your prayers rise, something like that. But that would be my understanding. Yeah, this is, this is really a works righteousness system. I, I think you guys can see that really easily. Notice the end of Shoop here. He says this is atonement and expiation. Dr. Ludwig got the temporal punishments for sins are atoned for in the purifying fire by the so-called suffering of atonement, satispasio, that is, by the willing bearing of the expiatory punishments imposed by God. You are suffering the wrath of God 
to make satisfaction, to make atonement for your sins. That's what Jesus was supposed to do on the cross. In purgatory, you do it yourself. Shoup actually gives uh, what is undoubtedly an apocryphal account of an apparition of Pope Innocent III. An apparition is where someone comes back from the dead and appears to you. And despite what they will tell you, they build a lot of Catholic theology on apparitions and what these apparitions say. To be sure, these apparitions are demonic. That's what they are. Mary did not come back and talk to anybody, and Pope Innocent III did not come back and talk to anybody. Here's what Mr. Shoup says. Pope Innocent III died July 16, 1216. The same day, he appeared to St. Ludgarda in her monastery in Iwiers in Brabant. Surprised to see a specter enveloped in flames, she asked who he was and what he wanted. He said, I am Pope Innocent. And she replied, Is it possible that you, our common father, should be in such a state? And he said, It is, it is but too true. I am expiating three faults, which might have caused my eternal perdition. Thanks to the Blessed Virgin Mary, I have obtained pardon for them, but I have to make atonement. Now, that's not very encouraging if the Pope, the guy you call Holy Father, has to be here. It's not very hopeful for you. But notice, how did he get pardoned? He went to Mary. I have a class on Mary, if you want to go listen to it. There's actually a teaching in the Catholic Church that if you want justice, go to Jesus. If you want, mer if you want mercy, go to Mary. Mary is the merciful one. He has to make atonement. Father Shoup again. The soul has arrived at the term of its earthly career. That life was a time of mercy on the part of God. This time, once expired, nothing but justice is to be expected from God, whilst the soul can neither gain nor lose merit. Your time for mercy is on earth. Once you die, now it's time for God to get justice with you. Shoup, speaking of the soul that's in purgatory, she remains in the state in which death found her. And since it found her, and since it found her in the state of sanctifying grace, she is certain of never forfeiting that happy state and of arriving at the eternal possession of God. So he still says, even though these people are suffering the wrath of God and God is getting justice from them, they're still on their way to heaven eventually. They'll get there. You're in the grace and the friendship of God, just his grace and friendship wasn't enough to purify you. You need to suffer on your own. Shoot, nevertheless, since she is burdened with certain debts of temporal punishments, she must satisfy divine justice by enduring this punishment in all its rigor. How much do you need? How much punishment do you need? Each one receives according to his works. Each one must acquit himself of the debts with which he sees himself charged before God. Okay. So that's the purpose of going to purgatory. Where is purgatory? Because if you know where purgatory is, it tells you a lot about purgatory. Mr. Shoup. The most common opinion, that which most accords with the language of Scripture, places it, purgatory, in the bowels of the earth, not far from the hell of the reprobates. No, not far from hell. Mr. Shoup again. Theologians are almost unanimous, says Bellarmine, in teaching that purgatory is situated in the interior of the earth, that the souls in purgatory and the reprobate are in the same subterranean space in the deep abyss which the scripture calls hell. Now, we would disagree that the abyss and hell are the same thing, but just go with his language here. It's in the same subterranean space. Mr. Shoup goes on. One is a dark and gloomy dungeon where the damned are continually tormented by evil spirits and by a fire which is never extinguished. That's, by the way, Roman Catholic medieval superstition that you're tormented by evil spirits because the Bible says hell is a place for, made for who? The devil and his angels. That would be the demons. They are being punished there. They are not giving punishment. And by a fire which is never extinguished. This place, which is hell, properly so called, is also named Gehenna and the Abyss. There is another hell which contains the fire of purgatory. 
There the souls of the just suffer for a certain time that they may become entirely purified before being admitted into the heavenly fatherland where nothing defiled can enter. Notice he calls it another hell. What are they suffering in there? What's the pain of purgatory? The pain experienced in purgatory will be real. Shoup says the pain of sense or sensible suffering is the same as that which is experienced in our flesh. Its nature is not defined by faith, but it is the common opinion of the doctors that it consists in fire and other species of suffering. Purgatory is just like being alive and sitting in a bonfire. Very, very encouraging and comforting. So what fire is this? What fire is this? Shoop. The fire of purgatory, say the Father, is that of hell, of which the rich glutton speaks, I suffer, he says, cruelly in these flames. The fire of purgatory and the fire of hell are the same. This is a reference to Luke 16. Remember the rich man of Lazarus? The rich man goes where? He goes to hell. The manual for the Purgatorian Society, just so you know that Shoup isn't making it up. According to the Holy Fathers, the fire of purgatory does not differ from the fire of hell except in point of duration. The only difference between hell and purgatory is how long you're there. It is the same fire, says St. Thomas, that torments the reprobates in hell and the just in purgatory. The least pain in purgatory, he adds, surpasses the greatest sufferings of this life. Shoop. The same fire, says St. Gregory, torments the damned and purifies the elect. Most all theologians, says Bellarmine, teach that the reprobate and the souls in purgatory suffer the action of the same fire. Saying you go to purgatory is no comfort at all. Everybody falls out of grace, and everybody's going to have these remaining temporal punishments that they have to have purified. The fire is God pouring out his wrath on supposed believers, people that Jesus supposedly died for. Shoup says, enkindled by the breath of God to be the instrument of his justice, it seizes upon souls and torments them with incomparable activity. This is a place where you experience the wrath of God as a supposed believer. Makes you wonder how they can teach that. God sent his son to die for sin, to suffer the wrath so that you wouldn't have to face the punishment. And yet they still teach that you have to go and suffer wrath because Jesus wasn't sufficient. Shoup affirms that in purgatory, people will be saved. They will be saved, no doubt, after the trial of fire, but that trial will be terrible. The torment will be more intolerable than all the most excruciating sufferings of this world. He goes so far as to say that souls in purgatory are in communion with God while God is punishing them. Shoup again. The souls are in continual union with God. They are perfectly resigned to his will, or rather their will is so transformed into that of God that they cannot will but what God wills, so that if paradise were to be open to them, they would precipitate themselves to hell rather than appear before God with their stains with which they they see themselves disfigured. They purify themselves willingly and lovingly because such is the divine good pleasure. Where's Jesus again? Where is he? What has he done for you? What's the duration of purgatory? How long do you have to stay there? Faith does not teach us the precise duration of the pains of purgatory. According to the common opinion of the doctors, the expiatory pains are of long duration. There is no doubt, says Bellarmine, that the pains of purgatory are not limited to 10 and 20 years, but they last, in some cases, entire centuries. The manual for the Purgatorian Society concerning the duration of purgatory, the church simply tells us that it is not a place of everlasting pain, but will end at the last judgment. Neither are we informed of the length of time required for the purification of the soul. Your length of stay in purgatory is dependent upon how much purification you need. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, the soul to be reunited to her creator in heaven must be in the state of primitive innocence which adorned her When she proceeded from his hand, the image of God must be entirely restored within her commensurate with the degree of glory awaiting her in heaven. So you have to go from this little wretched, nasty little sinner all the way up to being worthy of being in heaven. That's a long way to go. The manual again. It is evident that the suffering souls cannot enter into heaven until perfectly cleansed, either by their pains or by the suffrages of the faithful. They suffer until entirely purified, until the last farthing of their debt is paid. Increased and intensified pain will probably supply the want of time for the souls who will not have rendered full satisfaction before the last day. 
So that is to say, if you die like right before Jesus comes back, let's say a year before he comes back, he's just going to up the level of pain in purgatory. So you're purified in that time. Really comforting doctrine, isn't it? Makes you glad you're a biblical Christian, right? There are ways you can cut down your time in purgatory, if you'd like. Praying to Mary, having family and friends, the novena, pray for you. By the way, you, you pray to Mary for them. Having a mass performed for them. You can also get an indulgence from the Pope. We don't have time to go into indulgences. The indulgences are ways that the church can remove time from purgatory and remove your temporal punishments. In Martin Luther's day, you just drop a coin in the coffer. Uh, today, we have Pope Francis. This is from The Guardian, and this is my last slide. Vatican offers time off purgatory to followers of Pope Francis's tweets. That is real. Google it. And there are actually articles out there defending it, saying that's not really what the Pope meant. I show you that just because I want you to realize the absurdity of the system. This is works righteousness at its finest. And I really do think Roman Catholicism is the most dangerous false religion in the world because so many people believe that this is Christian. And when you talk to Roman Catholics, the majority of Roman Catholics, not only do they not know this, but they don't believe it. And when you tell them this, get ready because they're going to deny it. They're going to say, that's not what the church teaches. And then you show them official teaching. No, 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 no. That's the Council of Trent. We don't believe that anymore. So you show them Vatican II from the 1960s. No, 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 we don't believe that anymore. So you show them the catechism. No, 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 you misunderstood. So you go and show them the books from their apologists that have the stamp of a bishop. And they say, no, 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 that's not authoritative. So you show them the teachings of the popes. No, 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 the popes don't make up doctrine. They just don't, but they continue to go through the system. Um, when did they come into place? That's a hard question. They, like confession and penance kind of developed over the centuries. And it went from we want to see fruits of repentance to we want to see penance. It went from confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed in your relationships to confess your sins so that you can be forgiven. It kind of developed. They didn't become dogmatic, what the church calls de fide, a matter of faith, until the Council of Trent in the 1500s. Okay, if you have any other questions, feel free to come and see me. I'm a minute over, but let me pray for us and we will be done. Father, we, um, we know that you hate these teachings of the Catholic Church. You know that we hate them, and we try to be jovial at some point in this, just to try to ease the impact. But Father, we don't laugh at Roman Catholics. We don't laugh because of Roman Catholics. It's heartbreaking to see what this false apostate church teaches. And so we just ask that you would help us, since most of us know a Catholic or many Catholics, that you would help us to evangelize them that we would be honest before you, that we would not call them believers, that we would pray for their salvation, and that you would open up doors of effective evangelism, that we could tell them the true gospel, and that they could be liberated from this system of works. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.